Hello there everyone, and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed Network, and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name is Rob, and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie, and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT. Our title music was written and provided by Edward Thomas, and you can find all of his available work in the description. Just want to give a quick shout-out to the Narth subreddit again. Uh, They've just started their big... Game of Thrones rewatch in anticipation for the HBO prequel series uh, House of the Dragon, which obviously comes out in August. They're just about to finish season one of Game of Thrones. They're watching episodes every other day so that they'll be finished in time for when House of the Dragon comes around. I think towards the end, they're going to start watching an episode every day, but for the first six seasons, I think they're just going to be watching uh, every other day. And if you want to go back with them then you can go all the way back with us as well. You can have our episodes mm. as a companion as a companion <laughs> to the uh, the main event. Um, so we are going to start our episode a little differently because it's the final season, which makes it very special. But what makes it extra special is that somehow, and I didn't plan this, but somehow our schedule has fallen so beautifully that... This episode is being recorded and is being published on the 14th of April, 2022. And exactly three years ago today, on the 14th of April, 2019, this this episode, Winterfell, was, was broadcast on HBO for the first time. So on the exact third anniversary, everything's fallen together. It's beautifully serendipitous. Yeah. Um, I was very, very happy when I realised, when I did all... In October 2020, when I did our schedule... I was like, oh, hang on a minute. That's crazy. How, how has that come together? And can you believe that October 2020 is as far away from the current date as October 2020 was far away from the final season of Game of Thrones being broadcast? So about 18 months. Uh, we're 18 months on from October 2020, which was 18 months on from uh, April 2019. So... Lizzie, you weren't watching Game of Thrones and you weren't involved in the hype. So what were you doing? How are you managing to avoid Game of Thrones? Well, that's the thing. Um, like April 2019 was quite a, a happy time in my life. I had finally left retail after about 10 years. Um, this would have been after, I think, the first week I had attended North Codis. So, you know, new career opportunity, new friends, new opportunity. Like, everything just felt sort of refreshed and I felt alive again. And it was spring and finally the long winter was over. And it's one of many vivid memories I have from that time of, um, you know, I don't remember the commutes as such because who does? But mm. I do remember... That to get from Piccadilly Station to where I was going to North Coders, I had to get the tram past, uh, you know, Piccadilly Gardens and Market Street. Yeah. And Market Street runs past Primark. And Primark, of course, at the time had their special Game of Thrones range. <laughs> and not knowing anything about the show, I was kind of mystified by it because I, what I knew about Game of Thrones was very little at the time. It was just. I assumed it was, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and that sort of thing. Not interested. I lumped it in with, like, like Harry Potter. I know it's not for me. 
I get that other people like it, whatever. I can just ignore it. But now, actually having seen the show, it's even stranger to me that Primark would have a Game of Thrones merchandise range. And they've not had one since, which is funny. I think the uh, it will probably start making its way back. Oh, I'm um, sure it will. I'm with sure House of will. the Dragon, uh, with House of the Dragon coming, but that, to be honest, the fact that Game of Thrones had a Primark range, it kind of shows you what an unprecedented hit this was. That yeah, definitely. Primark would have, like, I'm trying to think of an an equivalent American store to Primark where it's just like four floors, loads of clothes. Like uh, Sears, maybe, or something like that. Like I was going to say, like, like Target, maybe. Yeah, something like, but Target. But that's like a yeah. supermarket. Yeah, so you know, it's kind of, kind of like that, but um, where it's like it's a warehouse size shop, and you've yeah. got three or four floors, and it's just wall to wall affordable clothing. It's fast um, fashion, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, and every now and again they do things like. Harry Potter or Disney or something or like friends, that. But, yeah. Or friends, yeah. You know, the things that, you know, lots of people watch and lots of people are very interested in. And this was what I would describe as maximum hype. Uh yeah. April twenty April twenty nineteen was an insane time to be a fan of Game of Thrones. I I was not doing so great. Like my living situation mm. Um, health situation wasn't amazing. Um, I was living in a house of three generations because um, my uh, my granddad, who's actually um, passed away now, we moved into his house to care for him because mm-hmm. he was entering the end stage of um, uh, vascular dementia. And so I was living with my parents and my granddad in his house um, and his garage had been converted, had to be converted into a bedroom for me because that was the only way that we could all fit in the house. And so, at the first the first night that this that this premiered, uh, went to bed at about ten p.m. and I set an alarm for one fifty-five in the morning. And I woke up and I was in my garage bedroom at the front of the house. And so I was far away from everybody else. And so I had my TV in my room and I had it hooked up to my PlayStation 4, which I've still got. And uh, I watched the episode on Sky Atlantic at two o'clock in the morning, all on my own. And that was exactly how I wanted to experience the final season. I just wanted to experience it by myself. This episode uh, is probably the most excited I think I've ever been for anything ever in my life. I can see why you would be, yeah. Game of Thrones coming back. Um, I was going to get to watch it and I was going to get to watch it live and I wasn't going to miss anything. Um, But then I had to sort of remind myself a little bit, like, hang on. Like, let's, you know, let's calm down. This is the season premiere. The Mm. season premieres in Game of Thrones are never massive, explosive episodes. Like, you've got two swords, but that was... That was the least typical season premiere of theirs because it was it landed midway through the book, and so it was beginning from the middle, whereas every other season premiere has started at the beginning of the story they want to tell for that season. And so the closer and closer it got, and the more and more excited I get, mm-hmm. 
I was a bit like, okay, Rob, just calm yourself down. Nothing mental is going to happen this week. It's just going to be, <laughs> you know, joining up some dots, some character reunions. Nothing crazy is going to happen. Yeah. And so just enjoy yourself. And so I watched the episode and then it finished and I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and then I watched the episode again. And then I waited until my mum got home from work because uh, I uh, I had Mondays off at my job. At this time, I was working four days a week just because of my health and stuff. I was taking mm. some time off. And so I waited for my mum to get home from work. And then we watched the episode together in the evening. So I'd watch it three times in 24 hours and then try and draw some conclusions from it. And we're going to talk about those conclusions today. This week, we are going to be discussing Season 8, Episode 1 of Game of Thrones, entitled Winterfell. It was written by Dave Hill and directed by David Nutter, and it was first broadcast on the 14th of April 2019 to an audience of 11.76 million people. Lizzie, what do we make of the season premiere, the big, the final, the last season premiere of Game of Thrones? It's a real mixed bag, this episode. Um, okay. Okay, like, okay, there's definitely some fun and interesting little moments that reference the very first episode and some very welcome reunions to be had in Winterfell especially, but overall I was surprised at how low stakes this episode felt. Like, it wasn't as tense as I was expecting the atmosphere to be given the Night King's proximity to many of the main cast and there's also just some moments where the chemistry between some characters just isn't quite there. And there's one, at least one, highly anticipated moment, which is spoiled by just being overwritten. But, you know, aside from that, yeah, I love the I love the opening scenes. I love the ending. There's, there's some very good stuff in here. But, yeah, it is... It's, it's not... I wouldn't put it up there with my favourites. It's one that's a bit rocky. Yeah, um, I actually agree. I think that the excitement at the time kind of masked how over time as the excitement has worn off, Mm. I have been less and less keen on this one. This is my, I think we were talking about this in season seven with Dave Hill. Yeah, yeah. Where Dave Hill's, the episodes that Dave Hill has done, which I can now reveal all of them, which is Sons of the Harpy, Home, Eastwatch, and this one. Home is like a clear favourite of his four episodes that he wrote. I love of Home. Course. We've talked about it. Go back and listen to our episode about it. But his other three, uh, they do find themselves in like the bottom 10, 15 episodes of of mine. Like when I look back at Game of Thrones, I'm like, one of my 10 to 15 least favourite episodes and three of them are Dave Hills. Hmm. And I don't know if that's just a coincidence or yeah, something, but like... Could be. I think it borders on having the same problem as Eastwatch, which is that it almost gives itself a little too much to do. I think true, like, yeah. all the reunions end up running into each other a little bit, and I think the epi- it makes the episode really exposition and recap heavy. And there's lots yeah. of characters. There's lots of characters like I last saw you at this place, or oh, I last saw you at this place, or when we last saw t- each other, you did this, and. 
it's basically the only chance this season gets to sit still and mm. look backwards. And most of the time, it doesn't really grab me that much. But then there are some moments which we'll talk about where it does look back in a way that is satisfying and appropriate. Some of the reunions, not all of them are that successful, but like the ones that are successful really sing to me. I think that there are some really beautiful moments. And I think underneath it somewhere... This is an episode about these characters just being thankful to still be around and grateful that they've survived the first seven seasons at all. <laughs> and it's... I think that there's something coming through, but I I think it just limits itself ever so slightly, and I slightly agree as well that there are some big moments in this episode that get slightly fumbled, mm. which I think will... Yeah talk about as we as we go along so i'm i've split the episode up into the the stuff at winterfell i've split that into two and we'll talk about that at either end of the episode with the stuff at king's landing and last half kind of sandwiched in between queen daenerys of house targaryen my sister sansa stark the lady of winterfell thank you for inviting us into your home lady stark the north is as beautiful as your brother claimed as are you. Winterfell is yours, Your Grace. We don't have time for all this. The Night King has your dragon. He's one of them now. The wall has fallen. The dead march south. At Winterfell, Daenerys Targaryen and Jon Snow, along with their advisors, their armies, and the two dragons, arrive at the castle. John reunites with Bran while Daenerys is formally greeted by Sansa Stark. Uh, before the pleasantries and introductions can continue, however, Bran informs Daenerys that the White Walkers have breached the wall and that Viserion is under the control of the Night King. And at a war council, Lyanna Mormont expresses her displeasure at John's decision to bend the knee to Daenerys, while Sansa fears that Daenerys' armies and dragons will stretch the North's supplies too thin. The tension is only worsened when Tyrion announces that the Lannister army will soon begin riding north to join the fight against the army of the dead. In private, Sansa implies to Tyrion that she believes Cersei has lied to them, and in the Godswood, Arya and Jon reunite, and when they embrace, Arya reminds Jon that the Starks are his family, and that he shouldn't forget it. So, um, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with the, um, the just the very opening scene using that kid running through the forest? Like, is that where you've started your notes? Um, I've actually started my notes before that on the new title sequence. Aha, yes. Yeah. Uh, eagle-eyed there, Lizzie. What do you make of it? It's, it's really good. Um, the locations are much more few and far between, like the show, but it allows them to give much more you know, detailed visuals like the, you know, the crypts in Winterfell and, of course, the Iron Throne. Yeah, you go right in. And I love how Game of Thrones theme tune has always had this dollhouse aspect to it. And yeah, now it yeah. feels like it's gone even further in. And now we're not just seeing the castles and the cities. We're going right into the bowels of it. Like we get the great halls, the throne rooms, the way they all fit together, yep. like Meccano sets. It's, yeah, I, I like it a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, so, I like the idea of them using the eyes of a child to show the arrival of John and Danny's armies because it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Bran in the first episode climbing the walls and looking over the, the ramparts to see that Robert Baratheon's royal, uh, uh, sort of like the 
Royal Motorcade was uh, yeah. was on its way. Um, and the music cue for Robert Baratheon's arrival from season one is also played here. But what, what do you make of it? Yeah, I've got pretty much a lot of the same notes. Like, I, I think they managed to pull off the Winter is Coming callbacks without laying it on too thick. It yeah, kind of highlights at yeah. once, you know, how much has changed in Winterfell, but also how history has a way of repeating itself, which, you know, like later on in the final theme, we'll come to that. But anyway, uh, particularly like the the boy himself, he he looks a bit like a young Bran. And it's yeah. like, yeah, this, this young kid who looks like Bran, who's also living in Winterfell and also climbs the walls. And, you know, Arya as well, she's she's grown up. And she's taken on a much darker persona, but she still has to fight her way through the crowds to get a view of the royal procession. She still has to fight through the crowds to get a view of that royal procession, like she did, you know, almost a decade ago. And there's also some, like, you know, speaking of Arya, there's some great facial acting by Maisie Williams, too. It's like, she's proud of John, and then she's happy to see Gendry. And then she's bewildered by Sandor still being alive. It's like, yeah, it's a good way of conveying all of these people have descended on Winterfell, some for the first time, all at once. And hmm. yeah, how how would someone like Arya take that in? Yeah, I totally agree. I've got in my notes too that there's lots of deliberate and satisfying rhyming with the very, very, very first episode of the show, the music cue, yeah. that little boy, even Sansa saying something like, Winterfell is yours, your grace, which is something that Ned said to Robert Baratheon. It's, you know, a custom greeting whenever the yeah. leader in the North greets, you know, the prospective or actual uh, ruler from, from the capital. Um, what do you make of them opening the season with a dwarf and eunuch joke combo? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it, I hate it, Just I to hate please it. the fans, eh? Oh, God. Like, I get that they've probably run out of things to pontificate over on the long journey and have become so sick of one another that they've descended to petty insults, but it didn't need this at all. Like, couldn't Tyrion have talked about what happened last time he came to Winterfell to, you know, remind the audience of how long it's been since he set foot there? Like, it's the, it's the first bit of dialogue in the episode, in the season, for fuck's sake. Why this? It adds nothing. I do think it's deliberate. I do think it is them thinking like... Because they said that they didn't read... They stopped reading forums after season four. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Like, no, moments like this, not. I'm like, you clearly didn't. Like, the big complaint was that Tyrion and Varys had been reduced to people who just joked about having no balls or having no cock or, like, being a dwarf or something like that. And so, of course, they would open the whole season up with the dwarf and eunuch joke combo, just to just to make everybody very happy, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I agree with the way that you said that uh, Maisie Williams, she does a lot with not very much, where she's basically just been told, okay, so react to the two or three people that are coming past you and yeah. make sure that every reaction has a slight nuance to it that separates it from, from the one previous. Um... I'm curious about what you make of... So, the dragons are in the north for the first time in hundreds of years. Um, probably yeah. the scariest sight in the world for quite a lot of those people. And they're all running and they're all panicking and hiding against the walls. And Aya, I love Aya's reaction because she um, she worshipped the Targaryen queens of old, reading about yeah, them. Yeah. And she mentioned them to Tywin in season two. And that was pretty cool. But what do you make of 
Daenerys's response to the North people's response? Well, I mean, it kind of feeds into something we get a little later from Daenerys as well, where she's got that sort of... It's like she's, she knows that she, um, she, she brings out fear in people and she likes that. That is very much the intention because, yeah, if you're looking to take over the world, then, yeah, you would want that sort of reaction, right? Yeah, I think that Daenerys's role throughout this episode uh, maybe will something maybe is something we'll talk about in the second half of the episode. But we can get a bit in here, where the relationship when you know John and Danny arrive and stuff, it's not quite this glorious homecoming you would expect. No. It's kind of frosty no. and complicated. Daenerys getting a picture of the people that she wants to rule over, yeah, because she wants to rule the Seven Kingdoms and the North is one of them, and there's a little. St- stubbornness and there's a little bit of suspicion in the air and it's that she may have to work to win these people over it's not yeah. just going to be a case of her coming in and oh how beautiful is magical is Daenerys like it's going to be like well hang on I don't know you and so she's going to have to do a bit of diplomacy and you know I I don't I don't really know if there's an obvious way that springs itself up uh, in this episode although Davos mentions it later that maybe there's an idea but right now there's a war on and so they can leave the politics for a little bit but the politics is always going to be there even though you're focusing on the threat from the white walkers it it, you know it, it feels like they may have to take care of a few admin bits before yeah they can be too happy um Tyrion also coming to a land where not many people necessarily like him either um, it's yeah. kind of nice that we're not, as I say, not brushing over the politics yet. It's still, you know, it's nice to pay attention to the fact that Tyrion's in the north and, well, the Lannisters in the south. Uh, the Lannisters from the south and the north have not got um, the the best the best relationship. I want to ask as well, I've made a note about the way that the news is spoken aloud about the wall falling and how they did that in this episode. I don't know if you've got any notes about that. Yeah, I did get a chuckle out of um, Robo Brand yelling out what I suspect is the key phrase for season eight. We don't have time for this. Yes, it was the key phrase for season seven, and it's not—it's not left—it's not let up, has it? It's uh, still no, still in the dialogue. Still there. Yeah. And also, did you find like, did you? Because I I saw the scene, and I don't recall much of a reaction from Daenerys about. Viserion being under the control of the Night King. Yeah, there is no reaction really. Like you see Daenerys's face, but then that's it. It just never comes up again. It's, it's really strange. Yeah, it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that the way they do this is fine. I just I don't think there's another problem with this exact thing later in the episode. I'm not sure if there's a way for Jon and Daenerys to receive the news about Viserion and the Wall that feels that would feel necessarily emotional and climactic like brand being a bit of an exposition bomb for this like mm, it's just yeah. it it feels a bit bland like yeah there was a th- there was a theory at the time that i always thought was a bit more interesting where the sound of the wall falling echoes throughout the north and right. everybody in the north hears it and that's how they find out 
or like they don't quite know yet, but there's a big disturbing noise. And so I don't know, John and Daenerys, you know, hoist up the dragons and go off on a mission or something. And then they look from a distance and they see that the walls collapse or something, you know, like something like that. But it, it, in the end, it's all just kind of boiled down to, down to Bran sort of going, we don't have time for all this. The Night King has your dragon. He's one of them now. <laughs> like, the wall has fallen. Like, this is the worst news in the world. And it yeah. just kind of takes about 30 seconds to be resolved. But He's like, previously on Game of Thrones. Yes, a little bit. Um, it's not the best. What do you... Yeah. yeah, so what do you make of John and Arya's reunion? Okay, it has the same problem for me that the Arya and Sansa reunion had, and that it's a huge character moment for both of them, being reunited after almost a decade after each suspected the other might be dead. But instead of, like, spotting one another and immediately embracing, they do this sort of hushed tone, small talk, mysterious act beforehand like who does that hmm. it might be it might be a bit nitpicky of me to even say this but it just i don't know it ruins what could have been a beautiful moment like the reunion between john and sansa in season six or even you know john and bran in this episode where yeah. he does just see him and goes straight up to him it's like I'm, I'm really happy to see you yeah, it's. I think the reunion itself, once it gets going, is quite sweet. But where John and Sansa's reunion was all about relief and safety, yeah, and a huge emotional outpouring. There's a degree of unease about this one, and I think it's partly yeah. because of story stuff and partly because of the way that it's been constructed. And right, just like I think the story stuff is that obviously I is suspicious of John's relationship with Danny and trying to remember. You know, this is your family. You know stay true to your family, like, don't just bend the knee to this queen and, you know, you've got to protect the North. Is Daenerys what's good for the North? And, you know, th- there's an element of suspicion and stuff, but, yeah, the other side of it is that it's it's decent. I think of all the reunions on the show, this probably gets, like, if John and Sansa's reunion is a 10 out of 10, then this is about a 7 for me. Like, it's it's okay. It's like a 7 out of 10. It's pretty good. Serves the point. But, they get a little yeah, lining oh, about Needle. It's That's the thing, yeah. though. Like, this... Like, the show has been building to this for, well, the entire run of the show. It's supposed to be one of the biggest moments that you could imagine happening in the show. It's one of those things that you anticipate might never happen, given that we've seen what happens to Rob and Ned and so on. Yeah. So for it to be just okay is... Mm, I, I mean, I get yeah. that thing, things don't always happen in real life that are perfect and everything falling into the right place, but... I don't know. I feel like they could have done this better. Yeah, I I think they definitely could have done better. But like it, you know, it's serviceable. And I think we've just had so many start reunions that they probably start to lose their effect after <laughs> after a while. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um. So another reunion on screen yeah. is uh, Sansa and Tyrion. So yeah. what did you make? Uh, what did you make of their little uh, their little conversation? Yeah, I I found it much better than the John and Arya reunion because it felt it you know it felt to me like Tyrion does genuinely respect Sansa and might even view her as his superior now. Hmm. Like Tyrion is absolutely right to note that many of the people who wronged Sansa are now dead, and the two of them even have the shared experience of being directly involved in the death of someone who made their lives a misery. 
And that's certainly yeah. much more than they had in common in season three. Yes, when they were actually supposed to be getting married. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? Am I most welcome here? You are a true friend of the crown. And an honoured guest. Good. As a true friend and an honoured guest, I was hoping we could talk in private. After the war, that was our agreement. Wars sometimes last years. You want a whore by one. You want a queen. Earn her. In King's Landing, Kyburn informs Cersei that the army of the dead has breached the wall, and the news appears to please Cersei. Euron Greyjoy then arrives with the Golden Company, whose captain, Harry Strickland, introduces himself to Cersei. Euron uses his deeds to convince Cersei to start their relationship, and the pair have sex, which is an incident that appears to upset Cersei. And later that night, Kyburn visits Bronn in a King's Landing brothel. He presents Bronn with the crossbow that Tyrion used to kill Tywin, and provides him with instructions from Cersei. If Tyrion and Jaime survive the war against the army of the dead, Bronn is tasked with assassinating them. During the night, Theon boards Euron's ship and rescues Yara, and the next morning, Yara decides to sail for the Iron Islands and retake them. Theon then decides to journey to Winterfell to fight for the Starks against the army of the dead. Um, so, three things kind of going on in, uh, in King's Landing this week. I think that first we'll talk about everything that goes on with Cersei and Euron. How, how did that work for you? have to say i don't really understand cersei's motivation like what does she get out of this arrangement she's sort of lowering herself to euron's level when she doesn't really need to unless that's the point and i've missed something like is it a way for her to create separation from jamie maybe it just seems like it's come out of nowhere i think it's a i think it's a sign of cersei's situation that something that she was previously dismissing and pushing away like you can have you know we can get married when the war is over you know it's like you know get me a gift got the gift okay we'll do it we'll get married when the war's over and she was pushing it away but now Hmm. it's like king's landing is even emptier now than it was in season seven if that was possible and it's darker and cersei's kind of desperate for allies and so you know euron's just nearest and she can you can tell that she hates it because like lena heady plays it oh yeah so that like she looks very physically very very sick and very uncomfortable mm. and upset with what's happened um and cersei's doing a lot of posturing like the saying like good when the dead have broken through the wall like it's all to me i read it it's all a front like cersei has lost basically everything like she has the kingdoms but she's lost everything to get there and so whatever she's ruling over it's a hollow shell and in order to fill that hollow shell she's she's invited euron into it and i see i think that this is a real i mean lynn head is excellent but i think she was really really wonderful in this episode there's a moment after euron leaves her bedroom where she just does that little swallow and it's like she's trying not to cry in front of in front of somebody and yeah yeah there's yeah, a lot right. of yeah. real tenderness and vulnerability to Cersei in this episode i really don't like the um 
you, you want a whore, buy one. You want a queen, earn her. It's like, did you just write this to, like, be gift into oblivion and memed? Like, it just feels a little bit like another one of those yeah. lines that they've tried to put on a T-shirt, like, I read the book and followed the instructions and I drink and I know things and... I don't know, it just doesn't feel all that... We don't have time for this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't feel all that natural to me. Um, yeah. It's yeah. a bit clunky, in my opinion. Um, there were some jokes. I don't know if you missed this uh, in the episode or whether you spotted it or not, but, you know, we were promised elephants and we don't get any. Oh, yeah. Um, so some people were actually memeing it with the Simpsons, that, where's my elephant? Where's my <laughs> elephant? <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, even Cersei's saying that line, like, wanted those elephants. And it's like, <laughs> I remember people spent the gap between season seven and eight sort of going like, oh, they're going to have elephants in the show. That'll be cool. And then they didn't turn <laughs> up and it's like, elephants don't do well over water, your grace. It's basically just a way of the writers going, we didn't have the budget, everyone. Sorry. And then <laughs> Cersei sort of going, wanted those elephants. And it, or, or everyone in the audience was sort of going like, yeah, we wanted them as well. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was um, that was that was a good time. That was a th- th- this was the last good time in the fandom, I think, uh, for me anyway. Before everything started to fracture and split. But um, yeah, but it's another moment again where saying aloud that the dead have broken through the wall. It's just like it's a massive moment, and it's just like, oh, could you not do it a different way, or like not have have no one in King's Landing be any the wiser? They're just waiting for whatever army comes over the hill. Yeah. In I don't know, ten weeks time or six months time or whatever. I I kind of think that because the dead coming through the wall does not impact the story in King's Landing at all this week. So no. just don't don't mention it. Just have them have no idea. But never it, mind. It, yeah. it, like it barely impacts the story at Winterfell this week. Never mind King's Landing. Yeah, there's things kind of, you know, that they have to sort of, you know, the army of the dead move at the speed at which they are written to move. So <laughs> like, Yeah, like molasses. Yes, exactly. Um, want to know your thoughts on the crossbow stuff with um, Ron and that. Well, yeah, I suppose going back to the start of that, it seems like we haven't seen a brothel in a long time. We used to have a brothel scene almost every week in those first few seasons. So, yeah, it's kind of funny to see Bronn patronising them like nothing has changed in so many years. Like, doesn't he have a wife now? Or was that no, just a that was like a, a potential arrangement. And then it was like, I oh, see. it's Jamie fucking Lannister, so I'm out of here. Right, like, okay. Who, who needs to marry Lollis Stokeworth? Um, yeah. I think they did get married, but then it was like they were supposed to have a castle and they were planning on killing her sister and then Jamie fucking Lannister turned up and they went to Dawn. So that was like Okay. Okay, it's the uh the it's the uh, the smugglers uh sw- it, it's the swashbuckling life for me. So um yeah, Bron picked that over a, a nice castle, I suppose. Um Yeah, with the brothel stuff though, I, I think it is a bit of a reference to the early days. Where it's yeah. like, oh, we've yeah. not been in a brothel for a while, so let's go back in one. And speaking of references, yeah. Yeah, a little the, um, joke about Ed Sheeran there. Oh, yeah. He's got no, um, what was it, got no eyelids? Got now? no eyelids, yeah. yeah. Can't blink. Never thought, never thought I'd hear the show alluding to the death of Ed Sheeran in universe, but here we are. Yeah. How about that? Um, <laughs> yeah. 
I was just going to say about the crossbow stuff. I mean, it feels a little bit optimistic to say if they survive the war against the army of the dead, you have to assassinate them. It's like, uh, you're you're definitely in denial if you're suggesting that that's even a remote possibility. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I think all this posturing from Cersei has resulted in what is my probably my least favourite idea from the episode, which is this idea that Bronn is going to go and take this crossbow and that Cersei wants Jaime assassinated and all this. I mean, it's all posturing. Like, she doesn't really want Jaime assassinated. It's just like, I feel this is something I have to do in order to show that I am strong. But for me, I think that ever since the spoils of war, I think Bronn's kind of overstayed his welcome a little bit. I think if Bronn had died with the the scorpion when Drogon burnt the scorpion and Bronn leaped out of the way I think Bronn they've run out of stuff to do with Bronn and so yeah. it's kind of ended up with him they had the nice talk with Tyrion um, at, before the dragon pit stuff but then he wasn't involved in the dragon pit stuff him and Podrick just went away and then he's in this episode and it's like we could have spent this time doing something else. And yeah. Yeah, I think I still like Bronn's presence in the show, but I also if it if they'd been if he'd been killed in the spoils of war, I think I would have been I wouldn't have been wondering, where's Bronn? Why are they not Yeah. Why are we not seeing more of him? Like I just Yeah, it's fine, but it's not my favourite idea and from the episode. Like even if he hadn't been killed, if he just got his money after the spoils of war, you know, Jamie gives him the gold, it's like, here you go, bugger off. And yeah. it's like, that's the last you see of him. Yeah. yeah, I get that, because you are just, you know, you're a sellsword and all you wanted was your money, so there's your money, off you go. Yeah. Problem solved. Yeah. Um. So, the Theon and Yara stuff. There's the Rob McKelleny cameo, by the way, and yeah. uh, Martin <laughs> Starr. Martin Starr, they both get taken out by Theon's arrows, yeah. Good kind of cameo, because you blink and miss it, I think. But yeah, Theon's big mission that defined a whole thing in the season finale uh, lasts less than an episode, so fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, well, he finally got a victory out of it, so can't complain too much. Yeah, nice little strange ironborn moment again, where Theon rescues her and Yara's response is to headbutt him, but, you know, (laughs) that's the ironborn. (laughs) That's the Ironborn. Who else but Ironborn? <laughs> the Underboy. It's a message from the Night King. His arm is between us and Winterfell. We're on foot. We rode down from Castle Black. We can double up on the horses. If the horses last, we'll get there before the dead. We just have to hope the Night King doesn't come first. <laughs> At last hearth, Tormund Giantsbane and Beric Dondarrion arrive to find the castle deserted, having already been ransacked by the Army of the Dead. And inside the castle, they encounter Ed and the remaining members of the Night's Watch who have evacuated and abandoned Castle Black. They find the dead body of a young Ned Umber who had been sent from Winterfell to evacuate his home. 
Beric recognises it as a message from the Night King, while Tormund declares that they must reach Winterfell before the Army of the Dead gets there. Ned Umber then reanimates as a white, and Beric burns him with the flaming sword. Um, nice bit of comedy away from all the politics. Uh, what would what, you make of the last half stuff? Do you mean the blue eyes thing? Yes, the uh, I've always had blue eyes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could take or leave it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, same, but, you know, it's, it's pretty funny. But, yeah, what would what, you make of the overall stuff at the last half? Well, I mean, poor Ned Umber. Like, not that he could have known, but he was doomed the second he was sent out on the mission. It's like, it's like he'd been sent out to find some tartan paint or a glass yeah. hammer and a bucket <laughs> of steam, you know. I suppose it gets over the proximity of the Army of the Dead to Winterfell, like nothing else in this episode does. Yeah. But, yeah, this is pretty much it for the episode. Like, one character who we know very little about clearly sent out on a fool's errand with only one possible outcome. And seemingly now the Night King has time to do these, like, displays with dead bodies, unless this is something else I've misunderstood. It just... Like, he hasn't done this before, right? He's just killed them and then recruited them to his army. The kind He kind of has. Like, the pattern on the wall, um, if you go back to the very first episode, there are right. patterns when they find the wildlings beyond the wall. All the wildlings get laid out in a pattern. Um, and then there are moments in season six where... They have the the outward spiral. Um, okay. And after the massacre at the fist at the first men, all the dead horses are laid out in this kind of this kind of spirograph thing. I think somebody uh, it's Mance Rado. He, he, when he comes across it, he he, refer, he says, "Oh, ever the artists." Um, right. And so okay. it's just it's basically just a symbol of the three eyed raven. Because it's where the it's the symbol is, it, it's around the weirwood tree where the three-eyed raven and Bran were in season six. Um, okay. There's like this kind of outward spiral spirograph thing, and so it's basically just a message from the Night King to whoever finds it that it's like, you know, the three-eyed raven is my target, like that sort of thing. Because obviously they don't speak, and so they communicate through. You know, these little displays and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, you know, it's fine. Like, it makes for a decent moment with the uh, the sudden, ah, the, the, the screaming. Yeah. Um, and it establishes that Tormund and Beric, you know, they survived Eastwatch and got away and they've bumped into Ed. Uh, so they're like, yeah. they're, at, they're, they're behind the progress of the army of the dead. And so... I don't think the Night King is on a mission where it's like, we've barreled through the wall and we're going to go straight to Winterfell. It's sort of like, well, here's a castle. Let's pick a few men up for our army. Let's, you know, let's let's pick a few soldiers up. Let's massacre all these people and then raise them from the dead and add them yeah. to, our, to our ranks. Um, just a little note that the voice of Ned Umber in this episode is a friend of the podcast, Sam Adolfo who we had on oh, to cool. interview in uh, season two. Uh, ah. She was at the head of all those uh, Burlington Bar videos, uh, the reaction series. Um, oh, yeah, she was, yeah. Yeah, she became friends with Paula Fairfield, who does the uh, the sound uh, on yeah. Game of Thrones. And so uh, if you want to hear how Sam put that little voice cameo together, the screaming, 
you can uh, go and listen to our interview our interview with Sam about uh, the process that she uh, underwent in order to get the perfect scream and send it over to Paula who put it into the show <laughs> nice I'm so sorry we need to end this war what do you have done not executing men who disobeyed me you've also spared men thousands of wildlings when they refused to nail I wasn't a king but you were you've always been I gave up my crown Sam I bent the knee I'm not king in the north anymore I'm not talking about the king in the north I'm talking about the king of the bloody seven kingdoms Back at Winterfell, Arya reunites with Sandor Clegane and then with Gendry, who she asks to make a weapon for her. Meanwhile, Davos suggests to Tyrion and Varys that the Northerners could be won over if Jon and Daenerys agree to marry one another. Daenerys then takes Jon on a dragon ride for the first time, which strengthens the bond between the two of them. Upon returning to Winterfell, Jon is accused by Sansa of only bending the knee to Daenerys out of love rather than out of a wish to protect the North, while Daenerys inadvertently reveals to Sam that she executed his father and brother while they were her prisoners. Bran then instructs a heartbroken Sam to tell Jon the truth about his parents and his real name. Sam finds Jon in the Winterfell crypts and presents him with the news, which leaves Jon stunned and slightly in denial. The next day, Jaime arrives at Winterfell and finds Bran waiting for him in the castle's courtyard, and the episode cuts to black on that. So, we're back at Winterfell, which is essentially turning into a refugee camp at this point, Mm -hmm. which is a nice little touch you know, the, the whole of the North are homing in on Winterfell because that's where they think it's um, where they think it's best to be protected, kind of like the uh, the people of Rohan going to Helm's Deep in the Two Towers, yeah. Lord of the Rings. Um, what do you make of... I think the defining moment, um, whether they intended it to be or not, I think the defining moment is Jon and Danny's uh, A Whole New World scene um, on the dragons. Um, what do you make of that? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's this week's so that's where all the budget went moment. But a little. I think the subsequent scenes with Sam kind of make it a bit well, the dragon ride, they make it a bit of a letdown because I thought that was going to be a clue of sorts, but yeah, anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. And I don't really get all that much out of um John and Daenerys' scenes together. Like they're obviously great actors, you know, Kate Harrington and Amelia Clark, but they don't have the kind of romantic chemistry that the show wants us to think they have. And so you get some callbacks to, you know, John and Negree, who very clearly did have romantic chemistry. They're married now. In <laughs> yes, real life. they literally had romantic chemistry. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, those those um, comparisons don't feel they don't feel earned and don't feel appropriate. Like John and E. Greep were the perfect opposite to Dract couple. Like John, he's hesitant and level-headed, and E. Greep was adventurous and intense. And I feel like Daenerys is a bit too sort of regal and self-important for John somehow. Oh, I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna be very tight-lipped. But basically, I yeah, I think that their chemistry in season seven, I thought was really good. Okay, but because I think that that regal self-importance 
clashing against John's kind of just slightly naive, just want to do the best for my people. It was an interesting contrast. And then watching them slowly fall together, slightly, you know, it was tense at first, but then they had that really good moment in the spoils of war where John was touching her arm and they were all by candlelight and they were in the cave and all of this. Like, you know, it was all, you know, a bit neat, cutie, and it was nice. And, but in this episode, now that they're actually a fully-fledged relationship, uh, it's. I think that they are let down a little bit by mm. the screenplay. I think that the moment in this episode that every time I watch it, I dread watching it with another person because it makes me cringe <laughs> so much, is when John says, it's called up here for a sudden girl. And then she says, so oh. keep your queen warm. And it's like, <laughs> and it's just, oh, Jesus. Um, I I don't mind the dragon scene. I think that it's interesting to watch John ride a dragon. I like the playful banter, like, you know, what if he doesn't want me to ride him? And then Daenerys is like, well, then I've enjoyed your company. And like, you know, there's a bit of, you know, a bit of playful banter. But uh, the, 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 the problem I have with this scene, actually, is the music. I don't think the music suits this at all which is really rare for me because i love ramin javadi's music so much for this show it's yeah, fantastic yeah. but when i imagine this scene in my head because obviously everybody thought about season eight so much to the point where we'd put down the plot points for everything that we thought was going to happen and john and danny have a dragon ride in the north was a big like yeah of course this will happen and so when i was yeah. imagining it in, imagining it in my head i was imagining this graceful like proper uh i think it i know we joked about it but i think it does call for something a bit more a whole new world rather than this kind of cantering like they're riding <laughs> horses as opposed to sweeping around <laughs> swooping around on dragons yeah the yeah. the kind of I prefer something that's a bit more graceful and a bit, and it uses melody a little better because this tends to use quite a lot of, you know how like Aya's theme, the dun 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 dun, dun it's that repeated ostinato, like yeah, it's yeah. you know it's constant, it's about you know this undercurrent of darkness that's emerging from the more playful theme that she starts with, with this one with the. It just, I don't think it quite suits the scene. No. I just, it, no. it gets there as it goes along, but the beautiful shots of them going through those valleys and cliffs, you know, by the waterfall, it's all magical and it's not quite real, but I don't think the music quite matches it, which is a shame because this is like 99% hit rate for Rami Javadi in terms of like getting the right cue knowing exactly what to do, doing that old Hollywood style of motif musical story, motif-based musical storytelling that I absolutely love and reminds me of, like, I mean, it's, it's an easy comparison, but like Howard Shaw's stuff for Lord of the Rings, where you can feel the story through the music and I don't think it matches that well. Yeah, you need just like a stirring four chord piece, like the duh, duh. like even the the show theme tune would have worked better. Yeah, like just a, a slight variation on it. Yeah, I I sort of agree. When they land, Drogon staring at John, I I do find it quite quite funny. Like a lot of people at the time were saying that it's quite similar to when couples have their dogs walk in on them while they're um, <laughs> having a little tryst. Uh, so yeah, I. I I, I do like that moment. I know not. I know it's not. I know it's not to everybody's taste. Yeah, but definitely. Yeah, um, but I I think it's fine. 
Um, while they're riding the dragons, the conversation is just beforehand with Varys and Tyrion and Davos has my favourite line of the episode. I know we normally ask for yours, and I don't want to spoil it if this is what it is. But okay. that line about how respect is how the young keepers at a distance because we remind them of an uncomfortable truth that nothing lasts. I just think that coming right to the end of the show, it's allowed to get mm. a little bit meta. And it's also a little bit, at the time I read it as a bit of a warning that like whatever kind of good feelings they get from reunions in this episode, all the various characters, the, the dead are coming. And I think it's the closest this episode gets to like how... I mean, I, I don't like people saying, like, the dialogue's nowhere near as good as it used to be, because it's like, well, of of course, like, you know, <laughs> the show's ear for dialogue when it was based on the books is going to feel a bit more poetic and it's going to feel a bit more booky rather than functional and TV. You know, you know, we're not all madmen. We can't all have, be entirely, you know, TV show and, like, be just immaculate dialogue from start to finish. Like, you know... The Game of Thrones dialogue has always been... I mean, it, I, in my opinion, it was... For the first four or five seasons, it was really immaculate, and I loved it. And since season six, it's been very good and very... Uh, but also very functional. And so... Yeah. This, for me, though, is a, like a little window into, like, the the slightly poetic and maudlin and slightly wistful nature of, of, of the episode. And it, it marries up with... It, it does feel like something that could have been from an earlier season. This this line that kind of offers a comment on something larger, something more social. And yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I I really do love I really do love that moment. We've talked a bit about facial acting in this episode, and yeah, John Bradley pretty much runs the entire gamut of human emotion when he learns about Randall and Dickon's deaths at the hands of Daenerys. And, you know, Amelia Clark too, she looks downright evil in this scene. Like when she killed the Tarleys for simply refusing to bend the knee, it's that look of, like, pride mixed with pleasure that it kind of makes her quite hard to stomach. Yeah, I've it's never it's never happened to me before watching this scene i've seen this episode as we say at the start of every episode at least half a dozen times but daenerys approaching sam with jorah in this scene it's the first time it, it crept it, it creeped me out it yeah, honestly creeped me I can out see why. like it's the first time it's ever happened where like it just feels slightly false yeah it just definitely uh, would you say like i remember you sort of when we were chatting about the episode afterwards you sort of said it felt a bit sinister to you it did, and I think it it might be because we see a lot of the show through someone like Sam's eyes, in that, yeah, he is, you know, he's someone who just, you know, he wants the best, he's a decent person. He does get frustrated with inaction at times when he feels like he's rallying against it. But, yeah, it's like to, to see him just in this quite enclosed space with, you know, Daenerys looking at him the way she did and... Yeah, straight up telling him, I, I killed your father and your brother. It's like, how do you expect him to react? What do you want him to do? To say, oh, okay, then fine. It, it, he does have that moment where it's like he has to process it all at once. And then that sort of brings him to the decision to tell John about his parentage. Yeah, I think it's um, quite interesting that this is the driver. Yeah. It's not that 
I mean, I think there is a part of Sam that just wants to tell John because he's his friend and he wants him to know the truth and all that. But the thing that really tips him over is that it turns it into a revenge thing. It's yeah. not like I need to tell John the truth about himself because, you know, I, I like him. And in, in, his, in his head, he's also sort of thinking, like, he's not thinking Daenerys shouldn't be queen because it's like Daenerys murdered my family so she shouldn't be queen. It's more Daenerys murdered my family, so Jon should be king instead. And it does cross a little line with it, and it makes it interesting that this big reveal is not out of a moment of... It's not born out of love and affection. It maybe is about 10%, but most of it is Sam feeling bitter and just kind of spitting it out and not not kind of taking time to tell John carefully, just blurting it out. Or, like, leading John to make the discovery himself. Yeah, it's all spoken. And so I'll talk about the Tarly's thing a little bit first, which is that a friend of mine at the time made a really good point that what Daenerys did to the Tarly's is like this bad... It's this mistake that keeps coming up. It's this stain... You're like everything that she's done so far in Westeros. Looking at it from a purely, you know, a war point of view, I think most people in Westeros would sort of be like, okay, kind of justified. Like, yeah. the, most of the stuff that you've done has been kind of justified. Like, it might be scary, but, you know, going after the Lannister army after they trapped your unsullied thing like it was retaliation within the rules of the game like you know that Mm. you know that i mean it's scary and it was horrific and daenerys was massively overpowered in that moment but you know people of westeros would see it as one army against another whereas executing prisoners that is when it stops being an act of war and becomes a war crime and yes it it just it's just hanging over a little bit that it's just this one decision she made has now had this huge domino effect where it inspires Sam to tell John about his uh, about his true parentage. So they've not wasted any time with it. They've not, no. you know, they've not hopped around it. You know, they've not skirted around the issue. They've gone straight to it. Um First time that John and Sam have been on screen together since the end of season five. Um and they use it for this moment. So how did it how did it go, the reveal, John finding out? How, how, how do you feel about it? Like you say, it is interesting to see Sam doing it because he's not a character we usually associate with, you know, revenge or holding mm. a grudge. Yeah. But yeah, there is always gonna be that part of me that wishes that John would have made the discovery for himself. And that's what I thought they were building to by having all of, you know, John bonding with the dragons in this episode and, you know, a couple of episodes ago as well. It's like he was doing that in a way that nobody other than Daenerys has been able to. And I thought that that was what the show was leading to, you know, planting the seeds. And of course, it's still a huge moment, but. It's always far more powerful when a character makes an important discovery for themselves rather than receiving the information secondhand. Mm. But yeah, it does feel, you know, as much as it is out of 
revenge, it still feels genuine from Sam. It's still, it's not a case of, and I'm telling you this because fuck Daenerys, it's very much because, you know, I'm your friend and I feel you need to know this information and our yeah. our time is quite limited. So, you know, better that you find out now rather than never knowing at all. Yeah, I think that the reveal of the information, <sighs> I think they fumble it, to be honest. A little bit, yeah. Um, the reveal of the information, like, I'm not sure. It's something that happens with Bran just telling Daenerys about the wall and what happened mm. with Viserion. There is a difference between a character... Emotionally, there is a difference between a character finding something out and a character genuinely learning something. Yes. Like, there's a character being told something and, there's a, and then there's a character finding something out for themselves. And if they get told something that we already know, or even if we don't know, it's not as satisfying as watching them learn that information and absorb it, like... This, this for me, was a huge issue. I know you've not seen it, and I'm sorry if everybody else has not seen it but this was for me this was a huge issue for me in episode nine of star wars the rise of skywalker lots of characters get told things in that film that would have been far more satisfying if we'd have found out with them experienced the journey with them it's like with bran in episodes 10 of season six like bran finds out the information about john at the same time we do and we experience it together we experience yeah. that emotional journey, whereas with this, it's just a Sam saying some dialogue and a reaction shot from John. And I don't know if it works that well. I don't know why David Benioff and Dan Weiss didn't want to have this moment themselves. Yeah, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah, it. It's it's not the best i don't dislike the scene i think it's fine i think kit harrington does a really good good job when like the the information is kind of breathed out into the room and you know the way that john absorbs it i quite like the fact that it's not good news like john doesn't take it as good news i've always been well, a, no i've always been a fan of how this little plot point has developed and now it's turned into a, a you know like th- this idea of him being you know, the, the the hidden secret prince waiting to claim his throne. Like, it, in fantasy stories, that's often, like, a good heroic thing. Like, you know, it's often, like, the news that everybody's been waiting for. Like, it's, oh, I'm, I'm the secret king. What? That's great. Like, I, I'm going to wield this, like, in Aragorn in Return of the King in Lord of the Rings, where it's, like, Aragorn is the one who has been lying in wait to lead peace to the world and stuff like that. And that's like good news in lord of the rings whereas like and I, I love lord of the rings but like i love the fact that in game of thrones this idea of this secret king waiting to claim his throne is it's like when when this king gets told it's like that's awful why did you tell me that you've just ruined my day like you've yeah. just ruined my whole life and now i'm questioning everything you mean my whole life was a lie what are you doing like and so i I've always liked the way that the show has held on to this information. And now that it's out in the ether, I do like Kit Harrington's reaction, but I wish the way that they deliver the news to him was, would be a bit more elegant and a bit cleaner. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that we've kind of skipped over the reunions between Aya and Gendry and, um, oh, yeah, Aya have, and we? Sandor Clegane. We've not really talked about those again, this whole thing, 
with this episode maybe having too much to do, it's like difficult to know where to place your priorities. I don't know if you took any notes down about Arya and the Hound. Um, I took, I mean, a brief one about Arya and Gendry. It's funny to see Arya being slightly flirty with Gendry. It's like, yeah, you, you go for that. Yeah, <laughs> might it, be your last why chance. Not? Yeah, yeah. Gendry's a hot guy, and he's he he's working hard in the forge, and. I uh, wants to have a little flirt, and why not? And why not? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but yeah, with um, with Sandor, like you know, before I mentioned about the small talk reunion, it doesn't really make sense for characters like Arya and Jon together because they're two characters who clearly love one another a great deal. But but in my opinion, that scene undersold you know everything they'd been through and all the time that had passed since they last saw each other. So the emotion was kind of sucked out of it. It's, but like here, the reunion between Arya and Sandor, it's, it's quite similar in a way, but it does make sense. They were two characters who were brought together by chance, not out of love or out of family, but out of Sandor's desire for financial gain, basically. And yeah, sure, he did a lot to protect her from the likes of Polliver, but it was as much about Sandor's survival as Arya's. But despite that, they clearly have both learned quite a lot from one another. Like, Arya learned for better or worse that brutality was often the way to win, whereas Sandor kind of learned the opposite. He would eventually discover that brutality against others would, or could, come back to haunt him in the long run. And like Rory McCann especially, he sells those feelings in this scene. He does his, you know, his usual snarking and scowling at first, but... You can tell there's like a little hint of a smile desperately like trying to break through, like a, a genuine sense of relief that this young girl he kind of fostered is still alive and has learnt some valuable life lessons along the way and has, you know, hardened up a bit. Yeah. Like he was trying to teach her all those years ago. Yeah. It's I, really good. Yeah, I, I can't add a thing to that. That's yeah, that is that is that dead on. Um and then we get the closing scene. We do. Jamie returning to Winterfell for the first time since the beginning of the show. Uh, did you expect him to pop up this early? And how did you feel when he did pop up? I did not expect him to pop up this early, but on, in hindsight, who else could it have been? Someone turns up with a cloak and it's like, oh, yeah, it's obviously going to be Jamie. But yeah, it's a great final scene, this. It's, you know, the episode, like the show, comes full circle as. Jamie has to lock eyes with the consequences of his own actions. And yeah. It's my it's my phrase of the day. Some great facial acting from both Nicholas Costawaldo and Isaac Hempstead Wright. You know, Jamie looks like he's wandered into a pit with a bird of prey waiting to feast on all of his mistakes. But Bran looks respectful and wizened as if he's thinking it's like he's saying it just with his face. You know, you made a terrible mistake in the past, but we're both different people now and we both have greater issues to deal with. And yeah, maybe Jamie was expecting Bran's reaction to be more severe, but as we've said so many times, this isn't Bran like we used to know him. And I suspect of all the Stark children, Bran will be the one who's least concerned about what Jamie did to him all those years ago. You know, after all, as he says himself, we don't have time for this. <laughs> and a thousand memes were born. 
when uh, Jamie and Bran stared each other out there. <laughs> but yeah, how appropriate that the first episode of the final season is directly mirrored to the uh, the, very, the end of the very first episode. It ended yeah. with Jamie and Bran. And so must this. Same music, right, as well? Um, yeah, very, very similar. Okay, then. So, I want your favourite line from the episode. Uh, my line of the episode is actually a conversation, but it's a, it's a quick one, don't worry. Um, Tyrion says, The last time we spoke was at Joffrey's wedding. Miserable affair. To which Sansa replies, It had its moments. <laughs> yes, it did, and we all remember them. Uh, it did indeed. Okay, who is your loser this week? Uh, it's Daenerys. Okay, uh, I guess just for the uh, the stuff with Sam and just the fact that maybe she's not won over the North in the way that she expected. Yeah, but mainly the stuff with Sam. Cool. And your winner this week? Actually quite difficult to pick a winner this week because nobody really comes out of it looking great. Well, I guess not that much decisive happens, but I'm going to give it to Sam. Yeah. Just purely because... Yeah, he's had a rough go of it this week, and I hope things get better for him soon. Okay then, we'll be back next time with Season 8, Episode 2, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, and I think that everyone who's already watched the show will be, um, really, really, in a warm way, will be really looking forward to talking about, uh, <laughs> listening to us talking about the episode next week. Um, it is uh, it is a bit of a favourite amongst people who uh, love the show. So yeah, we'll be back for that, and I can't wait to talk about that one. So we'll see you soon. See ya.